Hey there, my name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce Detoxicity, which is the podcast that you were just about to listen to. I hope that you have been listening and enjoying uh, for the entire time that we've been doing this. If you are new, welcome. If you are a listener of Longstanding, welcome again and thank you. Um, I appreciate the fact that you listen to this podcast. If you listen and enjoy, please feel free to leave a comment. Please feel free to rate on iTunes or any other podcast platforms that have the ability to rate. And please subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Also, I would love it. It's not a requirement, but I would love it if you followed me on social media. I am on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph, that is T-I-S-M-I-K-E-J-O-S-E-P-H, and I'm on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I don't need to spell that out for anybody. I'm also on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok, but you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. And if you would like to be on the show or you know somebody who'd be a good fit for an interview on the show, feel free to reach out to me via either of those two platforms, or you can drop me an old-fashioned email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Once again, that is detoxpod at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it, and I hope you enjoy. So, this episode is going to deviate a bit from Detoxicity's normal format. Uh, most episodes so far featured me interviewing someone, or on rare occasions, someone interviewing me. When I started talking to Luke Nielsen, who makes his living as an art teacher and football coach in Iowa, we ended up structuring this episode more as a mutual interview. So I quizzed Luke about what it's like to grow up in small town Midwest with over 100 family members. You heard that right. 100. Over 100. And he grills me about the music I grew up listening to. We share stories about personal evolution, social and emotional learning, authenticity, and the lessons we've learned over the course of our lives. Luke Nielsen is also the brother of Logan Nielsen, who has appeared on this podcast before. So this is the first set of brothers, or actually the first set of brothers that doesn't include me, to appear on the show. So everybody, give a warm welcome to Luke Nielsen. So my name's Luke Nielsen. I'm a father, a teacher, a coach, and I guess uh, I'm an author and do some other media stuff as well. That's kind of tied into that. Do a lot of things with social emotional learning, and it's kind of how I connected with you. So I'm excited to chat. And you are the second Nielsen brother to be. Uh, <laughs> that's that's to a big have deal. A conversation with. I was I was going through. Are we the are we the first pair of brothers on the show? You might be. There you go. That's a big deal. But uh, yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. Well, that's kind of how I'd first discovered your stuff as my brother on there which logan's the best man i love it's, you're getting it's pretty cool yeah, I, yeah. I got to meet logan in person a few weeks back and, and, and yeah you know we we sort of fell right into it it was like two old friends hanging out and then once i started listening to more of your stuff it was kind of like wow i really like what you got going on so likewise likewise appreciate it thank you yeah man so what what got you into this stuff what directed you towards this work well, that was something I, I guess, decided I want to do in college. And as far as doing the kind of specific like media stuff, offshoot things and writing, it was kind of the idea of like, uh, in school, it can be pretty limiting with some of the things that we address with young people. And I felt right away that there was a big gap between the social emotional education that we offer our young people. I mean, it's almost non-existent or it has been for a long time. I've been happy to see in the amount of time I've been teaching a bigger push toward that. A lot of states are adopting social emotional learning standards and stuff now, which is great. 
Right on. But, but it's something I think a lot of us knew we should have been addressing at the forefront for a long time. And I think a lot of teachers are under pressure to meet a lot of their academic standards. And they don't feel there's a lot of space to address those social emotional things. And it's good teachers do that anyway. And good coaches do that anyway. But I wanted to take some time to say like, hey, this is a thing we can actually set aside time for. And it's going to help everything else that we do with our students. So then the writing and media stuff was like, well, how do I extend some of these things we're doing in the classroom to the broader world or even give my students, my kids something that when I'm not in the classroom or when my kids aren't with me, we can dial that up and check it out and see what's going on. I haven't been in a classroom in a number of years at this point. So uh, it's interesting to me that as someone who has been out of school for 20 something years, mm-hmm. that social and emotional learning is something that's still not prioritized in school when it really is such an important part of life. And I think a lot of people would agree, then mm-hmm. multiplication tables or, or <laughs> reading, yeah. uh, you know, Lord of the Flies or, or mm-hmm. Homer's Iliad or calculus. So I, I wonder why things like this are not prioritized unless a kid turns up with a problem. For sure. Yeah, I don't know that I have a great answer to that. I mean, I think that was the same question I've sort of been pursuing. Yeah. And I think in some ways it is an oversight. And I do think in some ways teachers have to wear a lot of hats anyway. So if they're thinking, I got to meet these content things and I've got to do X, Y, Z. And we know Addressing people's social emotional needs, including our own, is difficult. Hell yeah. And I guess the way I advocate for some of this stuff now is like, how can we expect a student to care about solving for X if they've got trauma in their life and they're dealing with things at home? They're not going to. It's sort of like being sick. Like, if you're physically sick, you don't really think about much other than like, I want to feel better. And if you're dealing with emotional trauma, it's the same thing. I'm not going to care about this academic work you're trying to give me. I have these other bigger concerns. And I, I do think there is a movement toward this, that schools are understanding that if we address these things, it helps everything else that we feel we need to do and everything else we need to do to help students as well. But this is the number one thing. Right. As you're talking, I'm thinking about myself in middle school going through some situations at home and academically for a couple of years I just kind of checked out Mm -hmm. and I'd been a good student a really good student prior to that and when you are going through any kind of trauma at home it really is difficult for you to focus on or care about things when you're 10 11 years old you don't have the emotional uh, intelligence to separate academics in your home life or anything like that. Mm-hmm. For me, it was spending my, my whole school day thinking about what was going to happen when I got home. And uh, obviously, when you're thinking about that, you're not paying much attention to what's being taught in the classroom. You're kind of living in your own head. And it screws things up on the educational end of it because grades are falling. You're viewed as whatever, whether it's a problem kid or a dumb kid. And it sets off a series of events that could be pretty destructive unless it's corrected. Yeah, for sure. I've listened to a lot of your podcast episodes and then the ones even where you've been interviewed. So I almost find myself like 
writing down follow-up questions to some of the stuff you've <laughs> talked about. Okay. But, you know, your family situation, you moved at one point when you were young to an entirely different environment. Yeah. But how did that impact along with, I know you've talked about being bullied for a period of time at school. How did you do that? Because I feel like our students today, they don't, with online things, online bullying, they can't go home and find that sense of comfort where they can get away from it. Right. Did you feel that with, if you're being bullied at school, then you come home to a situation that wasn't always stable? How did that impact you? Did you feel like you didn't have a safe space to go to? There was a period of time when I didn't feel like I had a safe space to go to because, as you said, I was bullied. There were a couple of years, like late elementary school, early middle school, when I was bullied on a pretty regular basis. And it was my first experience with being bullied, and I didn't really know how to deal with it. And then I would get home and I was being abused. So it was kind of like, you know, you get beat up in the school walls and then you leave the school to go home, which should be a place where you're comforted and you deal with more abuse or more bullying when you get home. So it was just kind of like a no way out kind of situation. And mm. I, I think I've separated my emotions to some extent from that portion of my life. So I couldn't even tell you how I dealt with it. I, I just kind of like folded up in myself uh, a bit mm. and almost like fed into the disobedience to a degree because it was just like, well, if this is my life, then I'm just going to be it. Well, that's a big thing I think I see with students is if if students are acting out or if they're presenting behaviors that we deem bad behaviors or, or negative behaviors, we need to get to the root of the problem. Sometimes it's like we're cutting heads off the hydra and two more grow, or we need to get to the heart of the thing. What's the real problem? Yeah. And sometimes there are multiple problems. <laughs> yeah. It, it's I, one thing I think about when I, I think about my friends who are in education is just how much intestinal fortitude you you have to have to basically be a substitute parent in a lot of cases to to a lot of these kids or in some cases where they may not have a great home life you are the parental figure almost sure. and I, i'm not a parent i don't have firsthand knowledge of this it appears to be difficult to be a parent <laughs> full-time i mean but being a part-time parent to 30 or 60 or whatever kids mm -hmm. in addition to trying to do your job and educate them that just feels like so much stress. You have to be a very specific kind of person to be able to handle all of that stuff. Yeah, it's like parenting. It's a difficult task, but in the same way as parenting, it's very rewarding. And you get some deep emotional connections and things that you wouldn't have otherwise. Or, you know, you can have just not in the same way. You know, there's something about your children. And I feel the same way in a classroom, it's obviously different than my own kids, but I think I got better at teaching when I allowed myself to have more of those emotional connections to the kids and even tell my students, like, I love you guys. And we talk about in class, just those things that like, one of the reasons I tell you, I love you is because some students in this classroom will never hear it. And worse than that, some will only hear it from people who are trying to manipulate them or get something from them. So you need a place where you can just experience being cared for. And that is a heavy thing, especially since in my classes, we focus on social emotional learning. 
and I've done enough where now there's some times like, okay, if we're going to discuss this certain topic and my kids have gotten really good about discussing in class and sharing things with other students where I just know like today's going to be a heavy day and we're all going to be a little emotionally exhausted after our conversation. Mm -hmm. We try to do some things to decompress. I'll like bring my guitar or something and then we'll have a little circle in class where play some music and kind of just chill out. We all need to decompress, but understanding this was a valuable thing. I love the fact that you can have those moments that create warmth with your students because the teachers that I I bonded with the most were the ones who had a definitive interest that felt as personal as it was professional. And also the the teachers that weren't super aggro and brought a sense of calm into into a situation. Mm -hmm. Because when you come from a situation where there is no calm, like to have that calm is very, very welcomed. Yeah, for sure. I guess I'm just gonna I'm kind of skipping around if that's okay. Yeah, but yeah that's fine. Pop we're, into we're my head talking, man. as you're talking, kind of with that, with you know, school and, and your home life and stuff. And maybe I, I kind of know the answer to the initial part of this question. You, did you have a time where you felt like you were not able to live as your authentic self? I don't think I really lived as my authentic self until pretty recently. It's, it's been uh, maybe the last 10 years that I've really felt like I could live as my fully authentic self. I mean, I, I left home at 17 and mm. through my 20s, I think there were spots when I felt like I could be situationally authentic, mm. but I don't think I was presenting my full self fearlessly really up until you know pretty recently maybe even less than 10 years, maybe like the last six or seven years. But it's been a pretty lengthy process that I just kind of feel like I'm on the other side of recently. And I guess I, I felt a similar journey in that way. Now, it does, does seem to me you present yourself as this is who I am, yeah. you know, very secure in that. Were there specific things that kind of got you to the point of like, I, I need to do this or that kind of pushed you over that edge a little bit? I think... There were a couple of things. One thing was therapy for for lack of just being able to talk to somebody and parse out all of the noise that was happening in my head Mm -hmm. and and have somebody make sense of it and be non-judgmental was a huge step. And just growing into someone who didn't think that their existence was wrong, someone who was around people where mental health issues or alternative sexuality or alternative relationship styles or whatever, where all of that stuff was, hey, it was like, you, we're cool with who you are. We like you. We love you. We accept you. And coming into a place where I wasn't asking to be accepted, I was demanding acceptance. Otherwise, you couldn't hang. Uh, Mm. That, I think, has been the turnaround in the last couple of years. It's not been, hey, please like me. It's been... (laughs) You're going to like me. And if you don't, hey, too bad. Mm -hmm. And have you felt, I mean, has that been part of the reason that you've chosen to kind of focus on the idea of masculinity and and what that means and and toxic aspects of that? To a large extent. I I, want to say that the podcast deals with things that go beyond the scope of simple masculinity, Mm -hmm. but when you think about patriarchal thinking, when I think about 
all of the old school thinking that I grew up, I'm still kind of trying to rid myself of. It is all based in man culture, patriarchal culture. And a lot of it has to do with emotions and sensitivity. And women, by and large, I'm, I'm generalizing here, are given the freedom to express emotions and be sensitive and be caring and be intimate with each other without being sexual and be loving and, mm. and express indecision and all that other stuff. Whereas I still see in a lot of places, men are like, there's this barrier, this wall that needs to be broken because, mm. you know, yesterday was a, a World Suicide Awareness Day. Mm. And I, I talked a little bit about the friends that I've lost to to suicide. They've all mm. been guys. We're at a place where I feel like the culture is changing and not necessarily becoming more feminine. It's becoming queerer. It's becoming sure. less rigidly masculine. And the traits that have always been seen as heroic are mm. now being seen in a lot of cases as being damaging or toxic. And sure. I think we need to keep going in that direction. So I'm really just doing my part to mm. to not preach, not necessarily, or even to advocate, but just to share stories and mm. let people know that there are other ways. And also to let people know that they're not the only, for a long time with various things in my life, I thought I was the only person who felt this way. Yeah. And it's so affirming and eye-opening still to to know that other people go through or have gone through or are going through the same stuff that I have gone through or am going through. So For it's sure. just a matter of just spreading the word and, and, and sharing our experiences so that we know we're not alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And, and I feel like your podcast sort of cultivates a little bit of the, we think of like the, the barbershop feel or the coffee shop where it's like, Hey, men can have a place and, and sit and discuss, or just people in general, we can discuss how we feel and things. And I think that's so important. You know, as as a coach, I you know coach football and track, and I'm a strength and conditioning coach. So things that a lot of times have a traditionally what you'd think of masculine tilt to them. But talking with my athletes too, that you know, I, I am a proponent for you know mental toughness and tenacity and grit and those sorts of things. But redefining those a little bit, that like what's oh, really hard to do, it's hard to talk about how you feel. So if you're really going to be tough, if you think you're going to be this you know, masculine or alpha or whatever, however you want to say it, the hardest thing is talking about how we actually feel and being open emotionally, because it's a lot easier to denigrate other people and to close up how we feel. So I do think that's a very important thing that I think we're getting more of in society. I agree with you on that. And I hope we continue to trend that direction. Yeah, I, there's nothing wrong with toughness. Mm -hmm. I, that's a quality that I admire. There's nothing wrong with being a little rough around the edges. There's nothing wrong with being cocky. Those are all good qualities. Those are all positive qualities. They just have to be balanced. You can be all that stuff and be emotionally available. Like these things are not mutually mm. exclusive. So mm. it's really just letting people know that these qualities are strengthened actually by things like uh, social and emotional awareness and wellness. Mm -hmm. I agree. How have you felt the podcast has sort of helped you in that way? I mean, has it helped you continue to grow in that aspect? Oh, yeah. I learn something from every single person that I speak to. Mm. And 
I don't know that I can quantify any specific things like right at this moment, but just listening to other people's experiences, listening to how people interact with their children, listening to how people sort of deal with their own struggles and demons, how people deal with their traumatic childhoods, how people deal with their good childhoods, you know, just how everyone deals with life. It just puts more into my personal toolkit. Like, Mm. if no one else listened to this podcast, I would be like, wow, this is an educational experience for me because I pick something up from every single person I talk to. And just having a diverse array of experiences to pull from because, you know, you're in Iowa, I'm in New York. We probably have very different upbringings and lifestyles. Yeah. But to get that empathy mm-hmm. is, I think, a, a strength to both of us. Mm-hmm. So just yeah. getting all of these different experiences, whether you're a football coach or a musician or an actor or a, a psychiatrist or whatever, just, again, knowing all this stuff. It's interesting to me as someone who is sort of sociologically inclined, mm-hmm. you know, or who values sociological intelligence, but also as someone who is looking for ways to grow. And it's almost an, an advice show in disguise. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, that's a great way to frame it. And I found the same thing in, in the little bit that I've been able to do this to talk to people. And I think it's helpful for me as a teacher too. That's something I worry about my students living in rural Iowa. We're not always exposed to a lot of things. So one of the things I try to do is, you know, I have students, though, who are, who are dealing with things where maybe it's, you know, identity issues or home trauma things. And I don't pretend like, oh, I understand what you're going through because I, I don't. There's so many things I don't understand. But maybe I can try to you know, have conversations with someone else that's going to give. And like you said earlier about when we share things and then other people realize, I'm not the only one who feels that way. That's such a a big thing. And to have even like just to open doors for my students or myself is like, oh, no, you can have somebody in New York from a totally different background who has the same feelings as you. And I felt that was a big thing for me growing up was like finally that realization of like, oh, hey, you know what? Everybody has fears. Everybody has dreams. Everybody worries about things. Once you get that, then it kind of breaks down the barrier of being intimidated by other people, too. Oh, yeah. When, when did you make that realization? I, I think it was a really a long process. Like, as we kind of talked about, I think there was a lot of time in my life where, you know, I never had to, you know, I'm a straight white man, and I understand that is, I have not had to deal with some of the identity things that a lot of other people have had to deal with. For me, it was more, you know, I was an athlete, I was a college football player, you know, martial arts, those sorts of things. That was kind of always traditionally what we think of as masculine. Uh, On the flip side, I'm an art teacher. So like visual arts. So like even in college, I remember I was the big football player sitting in all the art classes. And I was also the artsy guy who had the English and art degree on the football team. And it's nothing I was bullied for or anything like that. But like, I think we all, as we, you know, hit maturity, try to figure out like, well, where do I really fit in these things that I enjoy or I'm kind of drawn to or whatever. So I, I think 
you know, for me, whether it was athletics or, or whatever is the idea of like, maybe I'm not good enough or, or I need to do this sort of thing. And then you kind of figure out like, oh no, probably everybody's nervous about this or was when they started. So it's okay. We all are kind of in this together sort of yeah. thing. And that, that just made a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. When you realize you're not the only person that has any, whatever the thought is, it frees you to be more of yourself. And I think back to, to when I was a kid and one of my big things was changing in the locker room scared the shit out of me. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And I, I think eventually I got used to it, but I think had I had someone else confided in me, hey, like this really kind of freaks me out, I would have felt more comfortable about doing it because it would have been, hey, there's somebody who's going through the exact same thing that I'm going through. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not this thing that's just foreign to me because from my vantage point, everybody else seemed so confident. <laughs> right, right. It was yeah. just like, what the hell is wrong with me that I can't do this thing, whatever it was. Like, I, I didn't learn to swim until I was a senior in high school. And, sure. you know, it felt like a jackass because it's like there's people on the swim team in my class, like doing laps and floating on their back and doing all this stuff. <laughs> and I'm trying to like doggy paddle. And there were thankfully a handful of other kids in the class. There were some people who were more scared of the water than I was. And that sort of built confidence in me where it was just like, OK, I'm not. I mean, I guess it's sort of weird to say I'm not the only person out here embarrassing myself. But <laughs> right. I'm not the only person out here starting from zero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and there, there's a little bit of strength in that. Have you found, too, I think something that I kind of realized at some point was like, oh, and then people who are trying to be extra cocky, ultra masculine, whatever, after a while, you guys like, oh, that's usually a posturing behavior. Those people are the most insecure, the most afraid in this situation. When you kind of realize that it like, I don't know, it takes some of the shine off of that. Yeah. I think people who are extra anything are trying to hide something like it's a front for, mm. for something. And I, it's a cliche at this point, but it does feel like a lot of people who are like extra loud, extra confident, extra cocky are really have some, deep sense of insecurity mm. and either they're trying to cover it up or they're trying to fake it until they make it. I think faking it till you make it implies that you're aware of how much, how unconfident you are and you are trying to get to a point of confidence. So I think people that do that are maybe a little bit smarter because they're aware of the mental game that they're playing. Yeah. 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 That's a good call. Yeah. Whereas, you know, some people don't realize that you can see right through the bluster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's talk about music for a little bit. Let's talk about music. I love talking <laughs> about music. That's good. Yeah. Music is big for me. I know I've heard you talk on the podcast before about just kind of growing up and always having music around and stuff like that. I know your affinity for Michael Jackson. You're wearing a Michael Jackson I'm shirt right Jackson now. T-shirt. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Were there any, like, you know, other than a Michael Jackson, like thing, band, group, artist, where you were like, Whoa, this changes things for me. I feel like I was in a constant state of that. Okay. Uh, up until probably up until I was 30 or so. Music was the first thing that I was into as a kid. And I don't know how it developed or where it developed, but 
when I was growing up uh, with my grandparents, there was always music in the house. I just stacks of records, different types of music, everything from like my grandmother, like like Percy Sledge and Tom Jones and, and shit like that. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, my folks have a background in the Dominican Republic, so there was Spanish music in the house. There was reggae. There was whatever was on the top 40 at the time. So the 80s, it would be Michael and Prince and, and Madonna and, and that kind of stuff. So there's always been music around. And then once I started working full time, I've worked in the music business my entire life. So since yeah. 1993, 28 years now. So I, music is really, really important to me. And I don't know if I can think of specific artists or bands that really kind of blew me away. I remember hearing hip hop, not for the first time, like, I remember when rap was new. You're when, sure, like, yeah. You know, people, you'd hear a song on the radio and be like, wow, you don't usually play rap music on the radio. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> and I remember when Run DMC first came out and I had a cousin and he was so passionate about Run DMC and was just would stand on our stoop in Brooklyn and just rap, run complete Run DMC songs. And <laughs> yeah. the, the passion that he had, I felt it. And I was like, I don't think I'd ever known some, and I was maybe six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. I, I hadn't known anyone as passionate about anything as that kid seemed mm. to be about Run DMC at that time. So that that I think is is the specific sort of music changing memory that, that sure. I have. Yeah. That's all. And do you feel like that passion for music, I guess for my students sometimes, I'll have students who, you know, when they're looking at careers or what they want to do post high school, it's often, here's what I think I could do. I might be good at this this would be financially secure. And I'm always trying to push students like, maybe those are the wrong questions to ask. What are the things that light you on fire that you're so passionate about? And then try to build something around that. I mean, did you find that? I mean, I know you've kind of always been in music in your you know, working life, but was that key to you that like, okay, this passion, this is what hooks me and I'm going to find a way to be around that. I don't know if it was conscious mm -hmm. when, when I was a kid, I, I was certainly led in a direction of doing something practical. Sure. So it's like, I don't know, everything from, you know, be a doctor, be a lawyer, which I think every parent wants. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. they want their kid to be aspirational. They want their kid to be successful. They want their kid to make money. But music was always my thing. And it was enough of a passion for me that when I was in high school, I made up a lie that I worked in a record store before I actually ended up working <laughs> in a record store. Yeah. And my friends were like, cool, cool. And I don't know how I held on to that lie for as long as I did, but <laughs> I graduated from high school and started working in a record store for real. Yeah. And I, one thing just kind of led to another. And I was very fortunate to have people that recognized my work ethic and my passion. Mm. And the last two jobs, I mean, I've only had four jobs my entire adult life, so 28 years. But each, each of the last two jobs I've had, I was recommended for that job by someone at my previous job. So sure. it was just a good, good networking and a little bit of luck being able to transition from one music position to the other without too much of a, a space in between. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And, and I, I agree. I think so many young kids 
if you ask them like what they want to be when they grow up, they'll say doc, doctor or something because they get praised for it almost. It's like the flip side. So my, my daughter, I have a nine-year-old daughter and she's very creative, very artistic. And that's something that like we share together. Like creativity is, is some time we spend together. And it's always tough for me, even as a teacher, because she has to work academically harder than my son has to work. Okay. And, and it does frustrate me as a teacher that in schools, we often only reward one type of intelligence, which is the academic ability to sort of just remember what the teacher wants you to remember. And, you know, I'm a teacher in the school district my kids go to and, you know, go to like a parent-teacher conference. And our teachers are, are wonderful. I really think that. But if it'll be like, a, oh, you know, Claire needs to work on the reading stuff or whatever. And I always try to be like, yeah, yeah. But like, she's also brilliant because she's really creative. And she built this the other day. And I was really happy when my daughter was really young. I had uh, a series of health issues that were pretty significant. And so like her earliest memories of me are kind of dealing with that stuff. Okay. So then she used to say, I want to be a doctor and I'm going to be your doctor, which was like a really sweet thing. Aww. Yeah, I mean, it's great. You know, and then people would ask her what she wanted to be. And she'd be a doctor and she would get praised for that. But I'm really happy now. My health is, is so much better and don't deal with those issues. But now my daughter, when people ask what she wants to do, it's always something very creative. She's like, oh, I think I would be an actress. I think I'm going to be a songwriter and move somewhere else. I'm going to be an artist. And I, I'm kind of like the opposite of like, yeah, I want you to do those things. Because if you love that, that's what you need to be doing. I think that's a valuable way to a valuable is maybe not the word that I'm looking for. I think that's a great way to raise a kid. Just saying Hopefully. you can do, yeah, I saying you can do whatever you want as long as it makes you happy. Wrong necessarily to teach your child to be practical and maybe do practical things. But mm. I, I think where some of us who were raised in different environments kind of suffer a little bit is there are some elders out there who don't view creative pursuits as professionally legitimate. <laughs> yeah. And I know plenty of lawyers. I know a couple of, of people who work in medicine and I hear about their jobs versus my job. And I'm like, I'm <laughs> glad I didn't become a doctor. I mean, a lawyer yeah. maybe is a little different, but you know, I, I would not particularly in you know in the covid era working mm -hmm. in medicine just sounds awful yeah. so I, I'm, yeah. I'm glad that i didn't pursue that as a, as a vocation but mm -hmm. I, I think ultimately we live in a capitalist society and uh, people place a value on money and and to a degree rightfully so but money shouldn't be the end all be all you don't take the money with you when mm -hmm. you die for um, sure but if you do something that you love and you're able to make a decent living out of it, like you hit the jackpot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and there are artistic, I mean, you can live on whatever you're comfortable living on, but there are artistic pursuits that you can get paid doing. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I think that's, that's another thing why I try to do some of this media stuff for my students, again, being in rural Iowa, you know, you know if, if you're going to be a movie director, you want to work in music, here's not the place to do it. And there's a lot right. of very valuable, wonderful things about living where we live. 
but like I try to travel with my kids a lot because I just want them to see like, if you want to live here forever in our small town, that's great. But if you want to try these other things, that's an option. And it's also a wonderful thing to do. Right. I, I'm spoiled to an extent because I spent most of my childhood years in New York mm. where knowing people who worked, eh, knowing people who had asked, it, it wasn't as difficult to picture as it may be for someone in rural Iowa. Sure. Manhattan was a short train right away. And there were people who were invested in creative pursuits that were Mm. touchable, that were tangible. Whereas I guess being in a hub where creativity can be financially rewarded, being someplace like New York or LA or Nashville or Austin or being in a major city period, it feels kind of far-fetched. For sure. For sure. Which I can empathize as far as I can empathize with anything that I've never experienced before. But probably for some people, the idea of leaving your small town and going someplace where you can uh, pursue something that's a little different is really a difficult thing to picture. Mm -hmm. For sure. Talking about music still, do you have a first album that you remember seeking out yourself that was like not somebody gave because i have like specific memories of the first time i was like oh i need to go get this right well what what's your memory i'm curious so it, it oddly a band that i still enjoy but like so musically like my mom was sort of like uh the country music that was on the radio you know that's what she listened to and yeah. i grew up and you know like kind of that boom of country music, like the late 80s, early 90s, you know, which is not a a bad period of music. And my family is very musical. So we have what we actually call hootenannies, which this sounds very rural. Wait, I don't think I don't think Logan told me about this, but explain. Okay, so (laughs) so our, our family is huge. My my grandparents, my maternal grandparents had 14 of their own kids and brought in 10 foster kids. Whoa. So yeah, so if if you're going just like counting from my grandparents to like the next generation of their kids and then to their kids, like not including spouses and and so many people in our family, if you're just counting in line of birth, I was the 50th kid born in our family and my son was 120. Wow. Yeah, so so it's huge. So when we get together for anything like Christmas... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. See, you are, we have to rent buildings, you know, for any family activities. Wow. Yeah. So then these hoot nannies, my my family is uh, very creative and very musical. And so it started with my uncles and then a lot of my cousins out of our generation, we will get together and either around like the, the campfire or in a house and you basically fill up the whole house. And everybody pulls out their acoustic guitar and we play and sing along together. So that was some of my earliest just connection to music was that like my aunts and uncles and cousins like playing records in the basement and then getting out guitars and playing. It was a lot of kind of the the folksier kind of a, a traditional Americana, like that sort of music that's kind of you often think of with playing an acoustic guitar around a fire. Right. Right. 
And then I remember getting a little older and like some of my older cousins who I got to hang out with, you know, then they're always kind of a few steps ahead, you know, of like what's kind of cool. So they were kind of like into rock and stuff like that. And I kind of always had eclectic interests and tastes. So I remember when Blues Traveler really hit the scene and Blues Traveler 4, when that album came out with like the cartoon cat face yeah. on it and stuff. That was the first one because I had gotten a lot of music from from my mom and my cousins and whatever. Well, that was the first album like I need to go own that now. Like for whatever reason, like I like this kind of alternative music that was coming, you know, getting big in the 90s. And I'm like, I'm going to go get that. Wow. Blues Traveler. All right. And now I'm trying to like break my brain thinking of like the, <laughs> the first album that... <laughs> that I kind of wanted for myself, not something that somebody gave me. Wow, I'm actually kind of drawing a blank. I feel like everything that I may have wanted to listen to at a given time, I could either I could either access via the collections of my relatives mm -hmm. or I could maybe get somebody to get for me. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, ah, man, I, I'm, I'm struggling with this. It might have been, I mean, not to make this the Michael Jackson podcast, it might have been <laughs> bad by Michael Jackson, which is something that no, no one else, no one in the family owned. And, you know, it was uh, saving up allowance money to, mm -hmm. to, to buy that on my own because no one else in my immediate circle had it. So I think, I, I, let's go with that. That might have been the first one. All right, all right, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Now, being someone I know who likes records i like you know the actual vinyl record too yeah. what are some of the most recent records you've gone out and purchased oh man what are the last things that i've gone out and bought i i, I buy a lot of used vinyl i'm sure. fortunate to live in in new york where there are tons of, of great used mm -hmm. record stores so i'm actually trying to think of the last thing that i bought man luke you're asking some difficult questions right now <laughs> uh, so the last piece of music i actually bought was the new casey musgraves album which came out yesterday oh, yeah, um, yeah and i the vinyl is not out yet i bought it on cd because i like the idea of if there is a physical component to mm -hmm. a piece of music to own it even if I'm only going to rip it to my computer and then never actually play the CD again. <laughs> right, right. It's like Casey got a couple of dollars of my money. You know, she's <laughs> yep. worth it. That was the last physical piece of music that I bought. And I bought it yesterday. So that's fairly recent. Yeah, yeah. Or ordered it the day before yesterday and got it yesterday. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure what the last piece of vinyl was. Last weekend was Labor Day weekend and we had a four day weekend from work. And mm. I did go out on Sunday to my local record shop and I picked up a couple of cheap things, but I don't remember yeah. what I bought. No, that, so. that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, <weird. laughs> that's all good. But yeah. no, I, I, I agree with that. I like to, you know, it's so easy to stream music and stuff now, which is great. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I'll sound old timey and tell my <laughs> students that sometimes like, like you don't know how good you have it. You just dial up any song you ever want to listen to, as opposed to like, having the cassette and listening to the radio and like it's so crazy to me i if people who are i don't know if there's anybody under like 25 listening to this it, there was once once upon a time <laughs> you could not access yeah every single song and album that had ever been made you had to go to a store and spend money on it yeah otherwise you just didn't hear it unless somebody you knew owned it so i i you know not to 
be on the kids today or a little spoiled kid. But, <laughs> yeah. man, if I was 15 years old and had access to every piece of music that it, I would have lost my mind. I would have gone crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it always kind of gives on the flip side to like when, you know, people of our generation or older will get like, oh, kids today always on their cell phones. I'm like, you mean to tell me if when we were in school and you had a supercomputer in your pocket that could play every song and every movie ever made at this instant, you wouldn't be on your phone? Like, come on. Seriously, I mean, the, the strides that technology has made in just 20 years, it, it's its amazing. I, again, hand it to everybody that I know that works in education and even people that I don't know that work in education because in when, like when I was in school, our distractions were things that you could take away from us. Like if we had, <laughs> I remember the little like toy things that, you, that had like the little pendulums that you like swung back and forth. I don't remember what you called them. They're little balls on the end of a string that you just <laughs> clacked back and forth. I think they were just called clackers or something, weren't yeah, they? Yeah, I think, I think they were yeah. called clackers, which I feel like if you explain that to a kid now, they're like, are you from the prehistoric era? Like, yeah. Um, you're hanging out with dinosaurs? Like, what's going on with that? And it was like, no, this shit used to entertain us. Yeah. Um, but now it's like in games and music and movies and being able to chat with your, your friends and not having to like throw pieces of paper across the room. Yeah. It, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it is. And my students, it is funny, like when I, I first got a, a permit and around here in a rural area, you get a school permit, which means you're like 14 and you can be driving to school. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So because if you live more than a mile from the school, because you live out in the country, whatever, it's supposed to only, you know, be good for from your house to school and back, but you can be driving. So I was like, I think 14 and I rolled a car, which is not a good deal. You know, but like talk, you know, kind of talk growing pains with my students. That was one of those things. And then talking about like after I rolled the car, and they're like, well, why didn't you just call somebody? Like, well, there was no it wasn't phone. Easy. There no- I just started walking, you know, because there was nothing else to do. <laughs> it's crazy how, how things have progressed. It, it really is. You know, I got to I got to shout out your nails. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I did. Did you do that, or, or did your daughter do that? Well, or? My my daughter does that, which is kind of funny. So, you know, early on, even my daughter was really young. Like, I just always wanted to be involved as a dad. So, like, I learned to do the paint and nails and like the hair. And I'm one of three brothers, so we didn't have that stuff in our house. So early on, I would do my daughter's hair and stuff. But even like at school, you know, there's always like the girl on whatever team who braids all the girls' hair. So, so I one time had the high school girl who was like the braid your hair girl. She even had the, the dummy with the hair that she would practice on. Like a mannequin? Yeah, yeah. But just like, uh, you know, like that you'd see like the put wigs on or whatever, right, like right, just right. the head, you know, but it had hair. So she would practice. So I had to bring it to school and like show me stuff and whatever. So I could do all that. <laughs> and then I got divorced from the, the mother of my kids when they were young. So then I kind of do the single dad thing. My kids split time with their mom. It's like, if my daughter wants this stuff, I still want to be on top of it. Sure. So I'd always like paint her nails and we do the stamping and the whole thing. Well, my daughter's old enough now where she's like, I want to paint your nails. So I was like, yeah, you know, go for it. And then it's sort of become a thing now because I sort of like people's reaction to it too. Like Claire likes to do it. It's time we get to spend like just quiet time together. 
And then when I'm like out in the world, most people like smile and laugh and they're like, hey, man, I like your nails. And it's kind of a fun reaction. And then if some people don't like it, like I kind of appreciate that they're insecure enough that like me having painted nails is problematic for them. So it's kind of great. So about, you know, once a week or so, my daughter updates them and we had homecoming at our school. I coach football. So our colors are red and white. So she did red and white designs on my nails. Yeah, I was just like, those are, those look very fancy. Yeah, yeah. She, she, like I said, she's pretty creative. She had a whole, whole idea she was going to do. So, wow. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty impressive that a nine year old, I mean, I couldn't draw a straight line. (laughs) <laughs> I probably still can't trust uh, So the fact that a nine-year-old has like the attention span and the patience to, to <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's kind of you know back to our you know previous kind of topic. It is funny, like with my daughter, where I want to encourage her to do creative things because, like, if we got to sit down, like, hey, we got to spend some time reading. She's she's not real interested in that, you know, and, and she'll do it, and she does fine academically, but like she wouldn't seek that out. Okay. I'm like, we're going to spend creative time. I mean, she spent all day. She's all of a sudden pulling stuff out and she's got the hot glue gun and she's got like, you know, a box cutter or something like, what are you, what are you doing? I'm going to make this thing. All right, cool. She'll go to town with stuff like that. Wow. I, that's pretty impressive. I, I envy that type of creativity. There are different ways to be creative, Sure. but the artistic creativity is uh, something that I don't really possess. (laughs) <laughs> sure, when it comes yeah. to being able to paint or draw or do any of that stuff. So I'm a little envious of that. <laughs> yeah, I think you do creative things in terms of like even the podcast. I always explain it to my art students is it's about putting something into the world that wasn't there before. Right. To me, that's kind of the cool thing. And however you want to do that, I think everybody has a little bit of that in them where it's like, I want to, I want to do something that wasn't there. Oh, yeah. There are lots of different ways to to be creative. And I think having a creative outlet is really important, particularly as an adult, when life as an adult can be kind of (laughs) monotonous, like pay bills, watch TV, sit on the couch, whatever. So having some kind of creative outlet, whether you play guitar or you paint nails or whatever it is, I think (laughs) it's it's really important. For sure. Add some fullness to your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do, do you think, I'm just sort of curious on my own, like, I feel a lot of times where I live too, again, rural Iowa, a lot of times it's sort of the, and I fell into this early where it's like, hey, after you go to high school, you go to, you know, college, or you go right into the workforce, then you get married, then you have kids, and then you're a finished product. And then this is it. And no more learning stuff, no more whatever, like, have you experienced that? Or Maybe it's my false perspective that in New York, you don't have to be a finished product. I was brought up thinking the same thing, whether it was by osmosis or it was specifically said to me, I don't know. But I thought that you went to school, you graduated from school, you got a job, you stayed at that job forever, you got married, you had a family, and that's life. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. nothing else to it. (laughs) And I don't remember at what point I I realized that wasn't what I wanted necessarily. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that there were other options Mm -hmm. for a while. And now I I realize obviously that there are other options because I'm in my forties and unmarried with no kids. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, 
And I, I thought that there was a point in time when you got your metaphorical degree in life and it was done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, it's never done is what I'm realizing now. And even at the end of your life, you're still learning stuff. You're still processing. I am very set in my ways when it comes to certain things, but I would say the majority of, of my being is in evolution. Like it's still a, mm. a process. I'm different at 45 than I was at 40, different at 40 than I was at 30, and I'll be different at 50 than I am now. So it's the same shell, more or less. But as time goes on, as we experience things, the goal is to evolve into a better version of myself, but we definitely evolve into different versions of ourselves for sure. Yeah. That's evolution is sort of what we're talking about, personal evolution. What was it like growing up with two brothers? Uh, it was good, you know. So I'm the oldest, and then okay. Logan, who you know, is, is three years younger than me, and then our brother Landon is five years younger than me. All right, so, so all super close in age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty close in age, and, and close enough in age where I think, as the oldest, I, I have some maybe regrets that I could have been a better big brother early on. You know what I mean? Like, so Logan was a freshman when I was a senior, and it was never like the oh, me and my buddies are going to pick on Logan. I mean, a lot of times Logan was kind of in the fold with, with me and my friends because he was funny and he was entertaining and, you know, fun to be around. But I think I could have done a better job earlier, kind of like, you know, mentoring a little bit or just being like, hey, man, like, I know this is a, a tough situation or whatever, but I'm really thankful now that like the three of us are our best friends. I mean, we love spending time together and and have very different life experiences. So I'm a, a teacher and a coach and whatever. Logan is a stand-up comedian and does a lot of things creatively. Our youngest brother is a wildland firefighter and works in forestry. <laughs> that's yeah. that's a hell of a job. Yeah, yeah. So I actually, I actually thought that when you like I was going to be on here, like Logan was on here. It's like the real trick would be if you could get my brother Landon to be on a podcast. That would be like the poll because. He's just happy to be in the woods, you know? He's an <laughs> off-the-grid kind of fella? Yeah, 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 for sure. But I think it was great that we, even maybe if there were times where we weren't, like, super tight when we were younger, we always kind of knew there was that support. And and with my, with my big, widespread family, you have a family that big, you know, it's not like everybody's best friends and always gets along, but I will say my family very much, almost kind of like a mob mentality a little bit of like, no, but you're part of the family. So if there's a problem, the cavalry's coming, like we're all in this together. So I, I feel like I've always had that. And then even as adults, it's been nice that then we found we have a lot of similar interests and different things we like to do, but stay, stay really close. That's awesome. That's uh not really an experience that I'm incredibly familiar with. I have half siblings that I'm not especially close to. I mean, we like each other. We're just not like buddies. So I'm curious about the experience of not only having siblings, but having two brothers as well. Um, well and you recently connected with a brother. Yeah. Yes, and, you know, I've heard a little bit, you know, just following along, like, how has that been later in life all of a sudden, boom? It's, it's a little surreal. And I think what makes it, the two things that make it the most surreal are, one, 
it's just weird to be middle-aged and all of a sudden realize, oh, shit, I have a sibling <laughs> that I didn't know existed. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and the weirder thing to me is the fact that we grew up completely different from one another. I didn't know about him until a few months ago. He didn't know about me until he was a teenager. But we are very, very similar in temperament yeah. and in we sound alike. And I mean, I used to be a much bigger guy. He looks like I did when I was, you know, a bigger dude. So it's it's been cool. And I'm so happy that we clicked. And I, I've heard stories of people that I know who have met with family members that they didn't know existed, and it has not gone well. So mm. for this to have gone as well as it's gone so far, I, like, I, I feel really blessed uh, to, to, to have that experience. And he's just, he's, he's a cool dude, man. I just, I, I like hanging out with him. We would be friends even if we were not related. <laughs> that, that is awesome. It, it were... Yeah, it's crazy, man. Yeah. With that growing up, you know, with a different family dynamic, and I've heard you talk about on the podcast, like the family that you choose, that like you don't have to be blood related. What do you sort of look for? Like, who are the people you're drawn to that you consider like your family? You know what I mean? I don't know if I have specific. Uh, that's not true. I look for honesty, which isn't necessarily something you can quantify, and warmth. Just like mm -hmm. being open and being communicative and being affectionate, like those kind of things. Community is something that means a lot to me. Interpersonal relationships mean a lot to me. I, I think that I've grown into a very emotionally warm person. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to have that reciprocated. I, I think I've, in a sense, kind of grown into the person that I want others to be, kind of, if that makes any sense. But yeah, you know, people who are supportive and honest and and caring and loving. And New York can be such like a competitive, people blowing smoke up your ass kind of place. Mm -hmm. um, and I like people who don't have any pretense about them, who are real. Those are the people that I, I, I want to bring into my circle. People who are willing to learn, people who are open-minded, people who mm -hmm. are, are interested in personal development. But, uh, you know, I think some of that is a reaction to the qualities that some of the elders in my blood family have. Like, we're not really an emotionally available group mm -hmm. of people. Sense of humor isn't always there. There's not a lot of open communication so, and I, I wanted to have those qualities in friends as even as a kid when I couldn't articulate them. And now that I'm an adult, I can articulate them. And those are the people that I, I choose to be around. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Yeah. I thought I had a big family. I'm still kind of getting over like the 50 <laughs> yeah. and 20 thing is like, I mean, do you have like a large circle of people around you or even like a few close non-relative type people? Yeah, I think growing up, there was something that I realized later. Like, you know, when you're a kid, you think whatever your existence is, is normal. Right. So I remember talking to other kids in elementary school and being like, well, I'm, you know, we're having a birthday party with all my cousins and there's 50 of us, like literally like 50 first cousins at a you know birthday. And, and then like other kids being like, well, I got three cousins and they live in Omaha and we don't talk to them. And I'd be like, that's weird. They're like, no, no, like yours is the situation that is weird because my family grew up Mason city, Iowa is a, a small city, blue collar city. You know, it's very much kind of an industrial town. And we lived on the North end, which is kind of that 
the less socio, you know, whatever, lower socioeconomic kind of area of, of this city. And where my mom was raised, literally my family just spread out from there, like in all the blocks and stuff around. So like, I can still like go, you know, through those neighborhoods and be like, this house is family, this house is family, this house is family, whatever. So that's something I was very fortunate to have as a kid was like always this big network of people around. And then we were like the weird family that moved away a little bit and not super far. We're like 35 miles away, but we moved to a smaller community because my parents kind of wanted to get us out of some of the things that like that neighborhood did have, you know, give us some other opportunities. So we we moved away. And then I was really fortunate to go and play football in college where then that was the first time I had a collection of friends who were from all over the country and totally different backgrounds than me. So I feel very fortunate that way too. Like where those guys from college, especially like we called each other family, like my, my buddies and I had an apartment where we would measure our heights on the wall and stuff. Like this is what families do. Right. And so I, I count myself very lucky for that. And then I, I teach now in the, where I went to high school. So it's gotta be a trip. Yeah, it, it is, but it is also nice. Like you do have that support, you know, and people who know you. And well, I think you probably saw, I posted on social media. We had storms here recently and a tree fell on my vehicles. And it was kind of crazy how like, the number of people who just showed up were like, you need help, let's cut up this tree. Like that is one of the great things about a small town. So yeah, I'm very fortunate. I feel like I've always had some version of that. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, That's yeah, really for cool. sure. I actually did have one one question for you. Just because I, I, I've asked this a few times before and it's I always get interesting answers. Mm-hmm. Like as, you know, an adult male, is there anything that you look back on in terms of like your own being a dude stuff, like your own masculinity and you're like, shit, I should have figured that out before. I should have done that better. Or mm-hmm. I wish I wasn't so um, stuck in my ways or I wish I wasn't so afraid of this thing. Is there anything in particular that you wish you'd have kind of figured out faster? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're still trying to figure out it. I yes, guess. There's, there's probably a lot of things. If I could go back and talk to my younger self, I, I think for the most part, I tried to be pretty open. But I, I think I would tell myself like, dude, you don't need to try to be the toughest guy on the football team. Just be who you are, because the people who are attracted to that, those are the people you want to be around anyway. And the people who don't like that, that's fine. I guess maybe I would have told myself that not everybody needs to, you don't need to like everybody else. That's cool. And then I think I would have liked to have been better at relationships, like romantic relationships as well, in terms of like, just being honest with how you feel about things. I think, especially as a, a young, like a teenage boy, and then especially, I don't know if it's different if you're you know, like a straight man, but there is sort of the like, you know get want to go out with girls or chase women and things like that. And I always tried to be very respectful about that, but I think times have changed too, or I would have just been better talking to the girls that I was dating than I was, you know what I mean? Where I think everything would center around just 
being closer to, to where I'm at now or I'm trying to go is just like, just be open and tell people what you think and don't try to put up a facade. I, that's, I think, not to minimize, like, that's a fairly typical teenage boy thing, at least mm-hmm. in our age group. I mean, when I was a teenager and, and you know, I didn't go on a same-sex date until I was in my 20s, but it was kind of the same thing. You're in these relationships and there's no communication because you're not, again, speaking specifically, I guess, towards my experience, mm-hmm. not really raised to know how to communicate honestly <laughs> yeah. with people yeah yeah so it's uh-huh. like how do you do this um <laughs> I, I hope that that's sort of a relic of our age and that young mm. people nowadays are a little bit better with their communication skills not wood but uh, man i mean as you know uh 16 17 18 year old in the early 90s it was just kind of like okay so we went out now what you right. know right uh, <laughs> so weird stuff well yeah like so the the woman who I wound up marrying is the the mother of my children. You're like, we lived together when I was 19. I think we got engaged when I was 20. I think we got married when I was 21 or 22. And like, I got hired for my first teaching job at 20. I'm kind of like a little young for my grades. Like 21, I was hired for my first teaching job and started coaching then. Turned 22 before the school year started. But in that time frame, I did all of these big life things. Then looking back, it's like, oh man, like I was not ready for that. Like I thought I was. And I don't know that I was a super great husband, for instance. I didn't, you know, like cheat on my wife or do anything physical or like negative things like that. But I probably wasn't very good about communicating or just being a fully realized human being at that time. But it's sort of like, well, this is what we do, right? Yeah. I mean, I, anytime I hear about somebody getting married, at, at that young an age, and I yeah. think I actually had the same conversation with your brother. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, like, we were 20, on it. Hey, 22 year olds don't know how to like wipe their asses properly. Like, you're <laughs> still there's so much learning that you need to do, and mm-hmm. to make the commitment. Presumably, you know, if if you're in a traditional type of relationship, to make a commitment to one person for the rest of your life at that age just mm. seems. In retrospect, you know, as as someone who's my age, just seems so far fetched. And man, if I'd have done that when I was twenty one or twenty two, I would be so miserable right now. Yeah. Uh Kudos to the people who can make it work. And you know, I'm not saying that people can't, but I think the chances are are pretty low. Yeah, I'm just curious as we talked about, like, kind of getting closer to who you want to be and being a little more authentic. One thing that kind of hit me. It's like, I've had other people in my life over the last few years be like, oh man, like you're so happy now or so whatever. And I got to be like, like, was I like a miserable jerk before? Like nobody told me because like, I appreciate that. I'm glad that that's the vibe I'm giving off now, but like kind of makes me wonder about before. I, so I was a miserable jerk. (laughs) I am, I will fully acknowledge that. So I, I I don't know that I've had anyone come to me with that because I, I think I was pretty aware of, of my misery when, mm. when I was younger. But I, that's funny. I, I, you know, I'm glad that people, you know, hopefully rightfully assume that you're a happier person now than, <laughs> yeah. than you were before. That's part of evolution. But I also feel like, you know, if I really was like a jerk before, 
Like, I would hope that someone would tell me that shit. Tell me in the moment, as opposed to, you know, if I have lettuce in my teeth, it's not going to help me if you tell me the day after. Tell me when it's happening or my yeah, flies yeah. open. Like, uh-huh. you know, tell me now so I can work on it now, as opposed to when I've already, you know, either figured it out or it's been so long that it's not going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Oh, man. That's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but that, that, is, that is the exact thought that I had. Is I'm like, I was everybody like when they're not talking to me, being like, yeah, Nielsen's not very enjoyable. But like, <laughs> I mean, did they? Was that answered? Were they like, yeah, we kind of talked about you, and we were like, yeah, he's not really happy. No, well, <laughs> no, not so much. And I, I think a, a lot of it was I went through a big life transition. When I mentioned briefly before, I went through a lot of health issues that were like sort of that were unexpected, which most health issues are, but like, we're kind of a weird series of events that went on for a pretty long time, like for about like a four year period. And then that period also culminated with me getting divorced and all these sorts of things. So I don't know that I was like, you know, outwardly disagreeable and stuff to people, but, but I think coming out of that, people, you know, just sort of, I think people, when they bring it up, mean it in a a complimentary way that they're like, Hey man, it seems like you've gotten through this stuff and are are kind of living the way you want to be that sort of thing. So I I take it as a compliment, but then there is that in the back of my head, like, did I, did I suck for like, (laughs) for for like four years or maybe for my whole life until this point? (laughs) To be fair, if you're going through a divorce, and or you're going through major health problems, you are probably going to suck. Yeah, like, that is, yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. Uh-huh. Like, who, who, who's happy, like, jolly going through a breakup? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that is a fair point. But I guess maybe my own ego is like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But you're on the other side and people yeah. are recognizing that. And that's a good thing. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Man. Yeah. Yeah. That was a fun conversation. LukeNielsenMedia.com is where you can find much of Luke's work. And also make sure you check out the Nielsen Brothers podcast, which he co-hosts with his brothers Landon and the aforementioned Logan. You can follow Logan. You can follow Luke. All these L's get me confused. You can follow Luke on Instagram at LukeNielsenMedia. And once again, thank you, Luke, for taking the time to be on this podcast and volley questions back and forth with me. Hey, y'all. It's me again. Just reminding you to please smash that subscribe button if you want to keep listening to this show. Leave a comment, rate us, whatever you can to push us up in the rankings. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, if you love the podcast, if you would like to be on the podcast, if you know somebody who is interested in being on the podcast or who would be a good fit to talk about masculinity, please feel free to reach out to me via my social media channels. I am on Instagram as DetoxPodGuy, and I'm on Twitter at TizMikeJoseph. You can even drop me an email, old school style, DetoxPod at gmail.com. By the way, not hating on anybody who still sends emails. I am old school proudly, and I send emails all the time. Uh, Detoxicity is produced and hosted by myself, Mike Joseph. Uh, The music for this podcast was written, composed, and performed by Calvin Williams. The logo for this show was designed by uh, Jacob Block. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for the inspiration to create this podcast. Uh, I thank you all for listening. 
and hope that you're all keeping yourselves and each other safe out there. Take care. Peace.